Friends, we've got an especially interesting show for you today, one that relates to all of us. So admittedly, sometimes the topics on the show, be it Sex in the City or the New York Yankees, are topics that I really care about and maybe not everyone does. But this is a topic that relates to each and every one of us, and that is belonging. We all need it to have a full and happy life. If we feel belonging, our minds and bodies, and of course, our spirits can be profoundly affected for the positive. But if we don't feel a sense of belonging, we really suffer. Here to walk us through all of this is Jeffrey Cullen, professor at Stanford University, who has made it his life's work to study the topic of belonging. Take a listen to our really interesting conversation. Professor Cohen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. I just told you offline we're taping on Labor Day. So thank you especially for being here on Labor Day with me. I'm delighted to be here. I couldn't imagine spending the time in a better way. Well, I don't know if I believe that, but I will take the compliment all day. Thank you so much. But so we're going to talk so much about belonging today. And the topic of belonging fascinates me to no end because there's not a human being alive who isn't affected by it, right? So let me start by asking you this. Is belonging a want or is belonging a need? And how important is belonging to our human experience? Mm. Well, whether it's a want or a need, I think ultimately is a question of semantics and raises a lot of philosophy of science issues that maybe we shouldn't delve into too deeply. I think the Mm -hmm. main thing is, is that we do crave social connection. It is the uh, a need, let's say, call it a need that is even wired into our DNA. We are a social species that in order to survive needs to be connected with others in our group. And so that affiliative need, that need to reach out and to bond with others is something that really partly defines what I was going to say defines what it means to be human, but you also see evidence of it as well in lower primates. So it is mm-hmm. part of who we are and it makes us, it gives us a sort of superpower. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk about this. The book opens by saying that we are in a crisis of belonging. Can you explain what you mean by that? We co-opted that term from Pete Buttigieg. And yes, yes, yes. 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 And he was referring to a sort of perfect storm of factors, including economic factors that are increasingly isolating many Americans and, and people throughout the globe. There is a way in which we are disconnected from each other, from our institutions, from the sort of belonging that have been conventionally available in our society to support a sense of belonging, such as work and our neighborhoods and our communities. Of course, of course, we all find a port in the shore to belong. Mm-hmm. But these days, that that unifying source of belonging that comes from country or community or work or our institutions are is crumbling. And that has led, I think, to a number of problems that are beleaguering our society today. Yeah. 
And what are some of those problems just off the, just off the top of your head? If, of if course. folks want to yeah. want to dive into that, they can read the book. It's, yeah, of it's course. A great 400 so, plus page uh, on, on belonging uh, yes. ad nauseum. And it's so good, but tell, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, I would say that there are at least three mm-hmm. crises that have emerged. One is the crises to health. Now, mm-hmm. increasingly, there is a uh, problem of loneliness in our society in which uh, many people are feel isolated from the rest of humanity. And that, that idea that the the, the state of loneliness researched by Steve Cole and John Cassiopo, as well as others, suggests that being lonely, chronically lonely, is as bad for our bodies as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. It is one of the worst environmental toxins out there. And increasingly, research suggests that loneliness is even bad for our genome. It switches on the genes that are responsible for bodily inflammation. And that's okay in the short term, but in the long term, it is fertilizer for early death. So that's one. When we're disconnected, our health suffers. Another is in our politics. When we're disconnected from others, from each other, we are more vulnerable to the appeals of political tribes and even hate groups, research suggests. Mm -hmm. Many people who join extremist groups do so not because they subscribe to their toxic ideology, but because these groups provide a sense of security and belonging and acceptance, a a sense of being someone who matters. And it's that that draws people into them, at least initially, rather than uh, an embrace of the ideology. So increasingly, I saw this in a New York Times headline, belonging matters more than facts, because we need that, we need that sense of connection. And if we're not getting it from our milieu, we become vulnerable to dangerous and even and ridiculous beliefs. Uh, that's another politics. And then school and work. Uh, I do a lot of research on the role of belonging in school and work. It's one of the big predictors of achievement in school and in wor- at work, that sense of being part of something bigger than yourself. And again, at school or work, turns out to be a very strong predictor of performance and retention. Uh, among the best predictors, for instance, of women's retention in, in STEM majors and fields. Mm-hmm. So uh, to the degree that people are feeling like they don't belong, many problems arise. And yeah. it's hard to kind of say that, of course, I'm not saying that this that the crisis of belonging is responsible for all, all our woes. I, I don't think that is the case, but there is a common thread. We happen to be living in this era That's a very special area in which very few groups feel confident in their belonging. And I believe that that's wreaking all kinds of havoc. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I believe that there are small things we can all do in our day-to-day lives to help make the situation better. Well, I wasn't planning on asking you this yet, but tell Mm. me a couple of strategies that we can do to help make the situation better. Well, there are a number recent research, I would say actually research over the past few decades, but actually even beyond that, suggests that one of the big factors affecting how we think, feel, and behave is the situation that we're in right here, right now. Mm -hmm. So 
yes, as many social scientists, sociologists, political scientists, many of us all understand systems matter, history matters, culture matters, but those can feel like formidable forces to fight, understandably. And while we're while we continue to fight to change our laws and institutions, there are things that we can do right here, right now, with the raw materials of the situation at hand, the, the hand that we've been dealt to make things go better. So for instance, I think one of the best strategies for improving connection is in the way we speak with one another. And mm -hmm. in fact, I just used one of the so-called interventions, wise interventions in my field by saying, the words I think. Research in my lab by Michael Schwabe and others shows that in political discussions, just simply expressing your opinions in a way that conveys that you understand it's a point of view. So saying, I think, I think Clinton is the better candidate. I think Trump is the better candidate, rather than as declarative facts, actually increases the openness of the other side to what you have to say. Mm. Not only that, it makes you yourself a little less biased and dogmatic in your interpretation of new facts on the ground about your candidate. Uh, that's one strategy that has remarkable effects on opening people up and also at decreasing our tendency to vilify the other side. If we hear the other side expressing their points of view as subjective rather than objective statements of fact, we become a little more open and a little less likely to vilify. We find effects even months out. Now, I know that that sounds like a small thing, but one of the things that social psychology demonstrates is the non-obvious power that some small things have. There are things we can do in our day-to-day -day encounters to make things go better. And the way we talk with one another is just one example. That is so fascinating. I have so many thoughts and I have so many questions like this, this topic for some reason, just really, it, it completely fascinates me. And I read your 432 page book in a day because of that. And I, you know, I want to touch for a moment on the health benefits of belonging. So when we feel as though we belong, you write in the book that it can strengthen the body and the mind. So what other positive effects can belonging have on us? Yeah. Well, let's talk about the converse. I think a lot of yeah, the, that was my next question. So yeah, the yeah. The opposite the pain of being disconnected. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Marina Keegan, a Yale graduate who died tragically. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. but she had this wonderful little essay, her final essay, where she's mm -hmm. pondering what is the opposite of loneliness, and it's not yeah. community, it's not love, quite. It's the sense that we're all in it together. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that really is belonging. And that really is what belonging is. It's not as, as deep a commitment as love may be. And it's not quite as distant a thing as community may be. It's this feeling that we're in it together. And so the opposite of belonging is loneliness, I would say, mm -hmm. uh, disconnection, and I think we really appreciate the power of belonging when it is withheld or when it's absent. It's, it's almost like a via negativa. We really start to get it. Mm. Most of us, we walk around day to day feeling an, a decent sense of belonging. I walk around my job or with my family or my friends and I feel, okay, I'm extended a, a, a degree of acceptance. I feel like myself is 
is seen here. Yeah. But then what happens when I feel not seen? And we all know that feeling. And we might yeah. be miffed or slighted in a, in a cafe or at a department store or in a stop by the police. There mm -hmm. is that sense that we're not being treated with the dignity a human being should be treated with. Mm -hmm. And when we feel that sense of belonging withheld, that sense that this person, this other person is seeing us as a full human being, uh, it is incredibly aversive. One of my favorite experiments is by Kip Williams, who does these deviously, uh, these deviously distilled experiments on ostracism where you're just passing a ball using a computer avatar on a screen with unknown people in a video game and all of a sudden the avatars in this game start passing the ball to one another leaving you out now unbeknownst to you the subject those computer generated avatars are pre-programmed entities by the computer but you don't know that that experience of being left out not being seen by these video av avatars what is the effect of that? And in a word, as Kip Williams puts it, it's pain. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of the regions in the central nervous system associated with the experience of physical pain are activated in that circumstance relative to a condition where people are included in the game of catch. So you imagine, wow, that acute episode of ostracism has that effect. What are the effects of chronic or prolonged ostracism? Ostracism, mm -hmm. feeling repeatedly disconnected from people, from your fellow citizens. And the research suggests it is toxic. It is really, truly one of the worst states to be in. And uh, Deaton and Case, two economists, link the rise in what they call diseases of despair, roughly, as I recall, 178,000 people kill themselves. Uh, or die through a slow process of addiction due to that feeling of being disconnected from the rest of society, of falling behind. Yeah. Well, and let me tell you how many of us, right, have experienced loneliness as we never probably have before throughout the pandemic. And mm. I did not get COVID actually until July, La not last month because it's September now, but um, in July, I had survived Co not getting COVID for over two years. And I actually had gone to Europe where I felt disconnected from my normal life anyway, but in a, in a good way. I was, I mean, it was, I was traveling. I was having a wonderful time. I came home unknowingly with COVID. And so then of course I had to isolate uh, after I'd already been away from my family and friends for 10 days, I had to isolate for another 10 days with COVID. And let me tell you that the physical symptoms of COVID passed for me, the worst of it after about a day or, or so, but the loneliness, the isolation, the disconnection, it, it sent me into a spiral. I'm, I'm like, I'm okay sharing that it really, the emotional and mental effects of COVID on me. And this was just after about, you know, 10 to 20 days of, of feeling disconnected, really more like more 10 to 12 days of feeling disconnected. It, I felt those effects that you're talking about personally, and it's debilitating. It's absolutely debilitating. And I bet, you know, we understand what you just said as a society more after these past two and a half years of the pandemic than we ever have. And so this book has never been more prescient. And I, I found this so interesting from the book. And I found this true in my own life as well, that you can be next to someone 
and feel disconnected from them. I think we've all been there. Maybe it's in the wrong relationship or just someone that you're having a falling out with or a coworker that you don't connect with. But conversely, you can be far away from someone as distance wise and feel connected to them. So obviously yeah. it's, it's not distance. And you write about this in the book, obviously it's not distance. So what does create that feeling of connection and conversely, what can threaten that sense mm. of connection? Uh, thanks. Thanks so much for sharing that story, Rachel, that, that really says a lot. And I think it resonates with a lot of what we all experienced during the pandemic and other yeah. times in our lives, we kind of go through these bouts of feeling isolated or feeling like we really are at sea and unmoored and need some social port unmoored that we find is the hard word to find. I use the most yes unmoored, yeah, unmoored. Is the word that I used over and over again to describe how I felt absolutely yeah and one of the great ironies is writing this book at a time of physical isolation a book on social connection and I think you're <laughs> okay. right it, it is a kind of thing that many of us are becoming increasingly aware of the irony too is that you know, you ask people what their most important values are. We do these studies. And over and over again, they say relationships and connections. We mm -hmm. get it. But what is hard is to align our lives with those values at a day-to-day -day level. We are forgetful creatures. We, we, we forget to prioritize the importance of connection in terms of our day-to-day -day activities, in terms of our day-to-day -day commitments. And so that's one thing that gets us in trouble is that we all have this uh, understanding that connection is really important for us and for other people and for our health. But sometimes we, because we, we have erroneous theories about what makes us happy, we don't pursue it or act on it. Now, going back to your question, I think it's, it's a really important and useful way to put it that the sense of belonging is ultimately a psychological reality. It is not something that can be completely or even closely described by physical reality. As you said, you can be close to other people in physical proximity in a crowd and yet feel incredibly isolated. Yeah, It is a subjective sense of connection. Our mind tells us when we feel it. And that's why psychology is such an amazing field, a mysterious field, where does that sense come from? And, uh, you know, I, there was a great uh, movie that came out over the pandemic. I forgot what it was called about these space travelers going out into space and getting farther and farther from earth, yet still maintaining their connections with the people back home in spite of mm -hmm. the vast distances between them. So that's the power of human psychology. Even at a distance, we can still feel connected. Even after death, we can still be connected yeah. uh, in people's hearts and minds. I would say that there are three sort of core aspects of that sense of connection. One is that sense that I am seen and accepted for who mm -hmm. I am. The other is that sense that I'm seen as someone with potential, a potential to contribute to the larger whole, a potential to reach a higher standard, a potential to give. And the third is that sense that I'm not alone, that we're in it together, this sort of Marina Keegan idea that mm -hmm. I people have my back. And there's a lot of research out there that suggests that when we even remind ourselves of our connections with others, say a picture of a loved one, suddenly some of the daily stressors that we have, they're not resolved, but they feel more manageable. It's as if we're looking at them from 
a broadened lens or a higher psychological perch so that a stressor like a bad day at work suddenly recedes in its importance and and we feel a little bit better even though the reminder or the connection doesn't resolve the problem we nevertheless feel better and something about being human that sense of being it together that makes our problems seem less dire that's so true i'm just thinking of the photos that i have on my desk at work and whenever i'm having a bad day just seeing my tribe or part of my tribe right it helps remind it helps ground me and it helps it helps me get through some tough moments and yeah that's another example of just little things we can do kind of rearrange yeah. our situation mm-hmm. so that the things that we care about are front and center pictures of Absolutely. friends reminders uh, even in concentration camps i, I visited one uh, recently in berlin is it's amazing to me how uh, the prisoners would create little things like mezuzahs out of just scraps from yeah. the camp to remind themselves of who they were. And that's one thing we can do is to craft our situations in ways that remind us of who we are, because it's easy to forget when you're just out there on your own. Absolutely. And this is this doesn't compare to the anecdote you just shared, but I'm sitting currently in my bedroom recording this with you. And on my nightstand, on my bedside table is... I don't know how you describe it kind of like a, it's a decorative piece, but it holds mail. And so instead of putting my mail, like my bills, which is incredibly depressing, I put um, keepsakes like cards, letters from people that I really love. And it sits right on my, I'm looking at it right now on my bedside table. And whenever I feel lonely, I reach for some, whatever I grab, it's going to be from someone that I love. And I'm reminded that I'm, I'm never alone. I have people that love me. And, and that's one of my ways to, to feel connected, even though they, that person might not be in my physical space. Um, Absolutely. Those little reminders can make a big difference. Even in uh, inner group relations, they have some research. This is lovely work by McCulsoner in Israel, finding that even in the context of the Palestinian Israeli conflict, that little reminders of connection or having a secure base makes people a even more pro-social towards groups that they have viewed as antagonists for a long time. So there's something about these moments of connection that if we can harness them or create them for ourselves, mm-hmm. puts us on a stronger psychological footing, often in these very difficult situations. I think the one way that I look at it is that uh, we almost have two ways of orienting towards the world. One is this sort of giving pro-social way. We are wired to give and commit to a larger purpose. Uh, at the same time, if we don't feel safe, we get into this sort of self-preservation or self-protective mode, and we become defensive and insular. And these two orientations, I guess it's almost like love and fear, we can toggle between. And I think that that's just part of being human, but we can create our situations in ways that bring out the better angels of our nature. And yes. what you're describing are ways of crafting our situation for ourselves. We can also do it for other people. And that's called situation crafting, right? That comes up a lot in the book, right? That's right. That's right. We, uh, The power of the situation is the notion in social psychology that the situation right here, right now, is what drives so much of our behavior. Yes, personality, yes, culture matter. Yes, social structure matters. But what really matters is what's happening right here, right now in the situation that we're sharing. And that situation is something that is in our power to craft. And as 
members of the situation, parts of the situation, we each share some of that power that the situation has by changing who we are, what we do in the situation, even little things like politeness, we can have a massive impact on the course, uh, on, on the way a situation unfolds. So the book brings this up and please excuse my immature reference here, but it made me think of the movie Mean Girls, which I'm, I, there's oh. no way if you study belonging, you haven't <laughs> seen Mean Girls, right? Even though you're you know, a man that maybe like that's right. That was a what that goes way back though. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. It goes back to my high school days. And so, but this this part of the book reminded me of Mean Girls. And let me explain. So, why do we so often seek our own belonging by excluding others, either consciously or subconsciously? So obviously, in Mean Girls, to again, please excuse my immature reference from two thousand four. But this is this is this came out when I was in high school very relatable. Obviously we've all experienced clicks and, and such. Um, and especially in the middle school and high school years. And those girls in the movie are co obviously consciously excluding people. They are the plastics and they, they very much are an elitist group, but why to find our own sense of belonging? And I'm thinking specifically of the Lindsay Lohan character. She comes in, she's the new girl in school and she's trying to find her own sense of belonging by excluding others, by being a mean girl. So why, why do we do that? And it's not even always conscious, right? Because we can do this subconsciously too. So why do we try to find our own sense of belonging by eliminating others? That is such a profound question. Right. That is. is such a profound question. I don't know the answer except to say it's easy. It's an easy way to do it. You don't have to do something yourself to earn your belonging, but it is actually very easy to make yourself feel good by putting someone else down. And that is a theme in a lot of the social psychological research. I mean, I was, I went through as a high school student, uh, middle school student, I always, I was pretty shy. I felt like an outsider much of the time. And I was just, I remember looking at the in crowds and the popular kids feeling like, what makes them on the in? And what makes people popular? Is it something about what they wear? Something about mm -hmm. how they talk? Mm -hmm. I can figure it out. And maybe it's that they play sports. Mm -hmm. No behavior, at least in my, no behavior for me it worked. But it just, it made me wonder, well, what is it that's going on to create this sense that, that cast some people as on the inside, some people as on the outside. And I think in high school, it can be pretty toxic. One of the ways in which we do it is through putting down other people, stereotyping and gossiping. Yeah. There's some lovely research by Sarah Wirt for example, showing that when you remind people about a time when they were excluded, you take two people that are friends and have them write about a time when they felt excluded, they subsequently gossip more negatively about a third person that they know. It's as if they're trying to make themselves feel better by saying who's on the out. So yeah. by casting someone on the out, we make ourselves on the in. Uh, it's like that old Peter Gabriel song. There can mm -hmm. be no in if there's no out. So I think that has something to do with it. And a lot of research in social psychology demonstrates that many of our judgments of other people actually say much less about the other person than they do about our own psychological states. When we're low in self-esteem, when yeah. we feel isolated, we're more inclined to be judgmental. We're more likely to stereotype groups uh, as inferior. That's when we take off the shelf these sort of negative labels to help restore our sense of psychological 
well-being? Well, in my MO in middle school and high school and college was the opposite. I always tried to include everyone. I would, I think if you asked anybody that went to middle high school, middle school, high school, college with me, they'd say I was the nice girl. I really wanted, I, I got, some people got joy in high school from excluding. I really did. And I know this makes me sound like a Pollyanna and I really am, am not, but it just made me feel good to be good to people. And so and I'm no perfect example of this. I've made my mistakes, but how can we foster belonging for ourselves and for others? Is, is belonging something that has to be organic or can it be, can you make your own mm. belonging or someone else's belonging happen? I, that's a great example. I think we're very sensitive to social norms. What we feel is what it means here to be a good person. And in your example, it's a, it's a great example. You had some kind of inner sense that this is what it means to be a good person. And that's what you derive that psychological satisfaction from was acting in a way aligned with your core values. So you were really in touch with yourself. I think for a lot of us though, going through these transitions, especially into adolescence, but into any kind of zone of uncertainty in our lives, we are often looking to the norms of the situation. What is it that people value here? And so one lever to pull is social norms. One awesome study by Lee Ross and, and others demonstrated this in a powerful way. Long story short, they had people play one of these strategic economic self-interest games called the prisoner's dilemma. And in this game, you can either be a greedy SOB and, and defect, or you can be a nice person and cooperate with your adversary. Well, most economists see this game as all about a calculation of self-interest and the payoff incentives. But what Lee showed is that actually it depends on the name of the game to a great extent. When the game was called the Wall Street game, 70% of participants defected. They were the greedy SOB. However, when the same game was called the community game, 70% of people cooperated and did the nice thing. Why? Because the name of the game communicates what it means. What is the norm for being a good person in this situation? So by playing with norms, I think there's some possibility to recalibrate people to find affirmation in that prosociality. One example of this is some lovely research by Betsy Palak at Princeton University, where essentially she creates, she does this with uh, I believe 28 schools, middle schools throughout New Jersey, she creates little, I'm going to simplify this, little breakfast clubs, you know, from that old mm -hmm. movie. We're going back oh, here, yeah. beyond Love Mean breakfast. Girls. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, but brings together like about, you know, seven to 12 kids in these schools to create these little posses of kids who want to create change and reset the norms of their school to be more pro-social, less antagonistic. And so these kids get together. And unlike the John Hughes movie, they stay together after meeting and talking about what kinds of changes they can they can create at the school to make relations better. Um, and they, they create online platforms. They have these hashtags uh, about being pro-social. They put up posters that help to set norms about being pro-social. They call out people for their altruistic acts. And she finds that this program that she created in which you're working to create new norms from the ground up with peers at a school 
reduces the number of disciplinary infractions school-wide by roughly 25%, which is a huge effect when you consider the fact that most disciplinary protocols and, and programs actually have zero effect. So this little change by seeding new norms recreated the climate of these, these schools and changed the kids' behavior for the better. So I would say one strategy is to play with social norms, mm -hmm. try to reset them. And oftentimes, I think what you find in a lot of these situations is that <clears throat> a phenomenon of pluralistic ignorance, people want to be more friendly and more connected, but they're scared to say so. And they don't have a channel for expressing this and working together. So what Betsy does in this program and what a lot of programs do is to help surface these collective interests that are often suppressed. Professor Cohen, this is so fascinating. And I only wish I had more time. I have a million more questions for you, but I want to be respectful of your time and our listeners. So my last question for you is this. What do you hope readers ultimately get from the book? I hope readers get hope. Mm, and I believe, so I believe that there is a lot of reason to, reasons to be hopeful. And I guess I would just say two things. One is, first, a lot of people share our desire for a better, more communal society where we're in this together, as Marina Keegan would put it. I'm going to uh, link to Marina that. Keegan yeah, uh, I think that's a, the, yeah. in the show notes because I've read that and it's such a tragedy as a fellow writer. It's such a tragedy that we lost her so young because she's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, that's right. And um, I, and so there's reasons to be hopeful because we share the same values. Many of us share the same. I mean, most of us share the same values. That is a fundamental. And where we get a little mixed up or sometimes very mixed up, I'm not saying it's easy, is down on the ground in the day-to-day -day encounters of our social lives, where we meet people who are different, diverse, from coming from different worlds. And this is an American, uh, a largely, not just American, but an especially American dilemma, where we have to work together across fault lines, lines of difference, and come to some democratic understanding of the world we're in and how to approach it. So in addition to hope, uh, and in, in addition to our sharing these values, there are also strategies for making our encounters less likely to be collisions and more likely to be opportunities for growth. And one of the things I'm trying to be a curator for is all the research in the social sciences. Just, it's almost like a how-to. Like this, these, there are, hope is not a strategy as they say, but there are strategies down on the ground in our day-to-day -day encounters for making things go better. That includes the language that we use and it includes certain mindsets that we have for how we see other people and all these are within our power to change this book is 432 pages of a masterclass on this subject belonging the science of creating connection and bridging divides is out september 13th thank you so much for being here today again i, I think this is going to end up being our longest episode ever and i could have gone on for 30 more minutes thank you so much for being here today thank you so much rachel This book is so richly full of information that Professor Cohen and I weren't even able to get to all of the questions that I had for him, like the importance of belonging at different stages of our lives or the effect of belonging or not belonging can have inside the workplace, a family unit, a friend group. It's such a good book. This is a book you need to pick up. It is out today, September 13th. Thank you again for joining me, Professor Cohen. 
And speaking of belonging, later this week, we're talking about the power of friendship, especially as an adult, and how to make and keep friends long after we've left college. Stay tuned.